Today's guest is Daniela Leggett. Dr. Leggett is a scientist from the University of Canterbury who primarily focuses on environmental management and tourism in extreme regions of the world. Currently, she's examining the effects of tourism on Antarctica and surrounding regions, such as Antarctic Gateway cities. In this episode, Jack and Dr. Leggett discuss the benefits and drawbacks of Antarctic tourism, the ways in which the ongoing pandemic has affected Antarctic research and tourism, and the effects of tourism on gateway cities. You won't want to miss this interesting discussion. Thanks for coming back to Polar Times, or if you're new, welcome. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Okay, everyone, please welcome to the stage my guest for this week on Polar Times. It is Daniela Leggett. Thank you so much for joining us today on Polar Times. So this is the first bit of the podcast. We call it the icebreaker because it's where we get to know you, our guest. Um, so who are you and how did you come to Polar Life? I'm Daniela Leggett. I'm currently an associate professor at the University of Canterbury in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand. But my way into polar research was not as straightforward as for some of my colleagues. I actually started out training to be a housing manager, which is probably as far removed from polar research as you can imagine. And that was primarily because I simply didn't have the funding to go into postgraduate education after leaving school. So I started doing that and got a bit bored with it after working and earning a bit of money and then decided no, I just want to change direction completely and I do want to devote more time to learning education and potentially research and started then studying international management and economics. So again, not really much to do with the polar research that I'm doing now, but it actually opened my eyes to not only the world of tertiary education, but also obviously the world of neoliberal interactions, which, which do play a role in my work right now. And then I went to Manchester in the UK um, to the Institute for Development Policy and Management and did a master's there on environmental science, environment and development, so development management and in the tropics primarily in less developed countries. And then from the tropics, I moved to the poles and did a PhD in New Zealand that focused on polar tourism and specifically Antarctic tourism management and regulation. And, and that's how it all started. Right. And that's kind of what the field that you're in now, I use the, the term field loosely because it's uh, you do a lot of kind of cross disciplinary stuff. But um, yeah, so hopefully you're going to talk to us today about um, 
kind of Antarctic tourism and stuff like that. Oh, that's so funny. You were in Manchester. That is my neck of the woods. So. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. yeah no, it, was a, it was a great place and I had a wonderful time there at IDPM. Um, university was fabulous and I made contacts with people from all over the world who were interested in devoting part of their time to assisting in development and assisting in making the world a better place, especially for people living in developing countries. So it was really, really enjoyable. And we did spend time in Sri Lanka and in the cloud forests of Honduras for research as well, which, which was fabulous, of course. So did you ever think that you, did you ever imagine that you would end up in kind of such a polar speciality? <laughs> Well, in the beginning, no, but then throughout that program of study and throughout the research that I did, I actually focused one of my um, papers on environmental impact assessments in the polar regions because I realized that there wasn't that much done, especially from a research perspective, on how environmental impact assessments worked in within the Antarctic Treaty System in particular. So again, I focused on the Antarctic because there was a bit written about it at the time, but not that much. And I was just fascinated by the whole notion that there was this continent that was set aside for peace and science and um, that had very visionary environmental protection mechanisms in place through the protocol on environmental protection to the Antarctic Treaty. And the, the vision outlined at the protocol was essentially groundbreaking, essentially setting a continent aside for environmental protection. Obviously, we know that not everything can be achieved as it was set out in the regulation, but it still resonated with me a lot when I read that. And I think I just moved from one thing to the next and then realized that, well, there's a lot of tourism happening in the Antarctic already at the time when I was doing my master's. And there's hardly anything written about how it has been governed and why. And in the beginning, I actually started with a bit of an anti-tourism bias, which I shouldn't really admit to, because as a social scientist, you try to keep an open mind and try to really move away from your preconceived ideas about how interactions occur in well, any specific realm that you're looking into. But I was, I was really aware of that bias. But over time and through my research and through also being involved in tourism operations as one of the expedition team members, I actually came to appreciate that a lot of the tourism operators and their staff are trying to do the best to maintain, well, I don't want to call it pristine character of Antarctica, that word is being overused and it is certainly not pristine as we all know, because it is being affected by human actions anywhere in the world through those teleconnections, for instance, or through climate change impact, just to name a few, or microplastics. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, so we know it's not pristine and it's not untouched by humans either, but from interacting with the tourism operators and being part of the team, I did realize that there were actually, in many cases, doing this job with, because they were themselves in love with 
Antarctica and in love with trying to protect Antarctic environments. So then my perception changed a bit in that regard. Um, so I came to understand that you have to view it in a much more nuanced fashion. And I mean, aside from the fact that we cannot really prohibit tourism in Antarctica in a legal manner at this stage, we just have to find a way of ensuring that it supports, well, the vision that the Antarctic Treaty Party set forward with the protocol and with other instruments that form part of the Antarctic Treaty System. And that we also ensure that the rest of the world and humanity gets a benefit from having a certain part of humanity visit Antarctica through commercial means. Yeah, oh, that's so interesting um, what you're saying about kind of having a little bit of a bias against tourism because I'm fairly sure that I myself had that bias as well and maybe it to some degree still do maybe a little bit maybe I shouldn't admit that <laughs> on a podcast but it's in yeah it's interesting because I suppose when I I mean I'm an early career researcher so I've only been doing polar stuff for the last two years and a little bit maybe and I think at first I was quite surprised at how much tourism in Antarctica was like you say you kind of picture it as this pristine I'm doing air quotes uh wilderness and even if you didn't know anything about the Antarctic Treaty or very much about it you imagine that it's kind of I don't know you just don't think there's a lot of like footfall you know of tourism and cruise ships yeah. and stuff like that so when I went to my field work on South Georgia which is obviously quite a you know a high <laughs> pass-through point lots of cruise ships go there I was quite surprised and I was quite surprised to hear that they're planning on you know, expanding tourism. And, uh, you know, I'm a I mean, biologist and part of me is like, oh, golly, <laughs> you know, and I can understand the benefits of ecotourism, you know, for, especially for developing nations that rely on economy from it. But Antarctica is a little bit differently managed. So, and now, yeah. <laughs> so that's where you're going to tell yeah, me all about Antarctic I mean, tourism and the, the pros of it. <laughs> it is a tricky issue. And it's not just an issue for Antarctica. I mean, if we, and this is coming very much from a Western perspective here, and we have to acknowledge that, that we are culturally positioning ourselves with regard to how we see the world and how we think about issues such as tourism. Being a tourist has quite a negative connotation to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Not just people who travel to the Antarctic, yeah. but also the likes of us. So we already automatically somehow approach it, approach the subject of being seen as a tourist somewhere as slightly negative. Because we'd rather want to be known as people exploring a certain region or interacting with other people or visitors. But tourism itself does have a slight negative connotation in in english and in also in other western countries that have a similar approach to tourism management and those are primarily as you've already indicated those wealthy western countries when we do know that some regions of the world greatly rely on and benefit from tourism provided it is done in a sustainable manner um, and oftentimes it's not. And then it can be actually quite disastrous for local populations, especially. If you compare how tourism is managed in the Antarctic to elsewhere, 
then I would argue that with IATO, with the International Association of Antarctica Cooperators in place, and with them pretty much controlling the majority of commercial tourism in Antarctica and guiding how this tourism should occur, we, we are seeing a much more reasonable approach to interacting with the environment. So I did talk about tourism having this like negative connotation and technically being reasonably well managed in situ by the tourism operators themselves through the International Association of Antarctica Tour Operators in, in Antarctica. However, we do have to keep in mind that tourism has a significant carbon footprint. But the same is true for science or any Antarctic operation. So I think when we evaluate tourism in Antarctica, we have to think about human presence full stop in Antarctica and what kind of benefit and purpose does it serve? We cannot just say, oh, well, just because I'm a paid researcher, <laughs> I, can, I have the right to go to Antarctica and um, pretty much interact with all the environments, go to a range of places. And while I'm doing my research, do the research, but also enjoy myself on the site and visit historic sites or whatever it is that people who are staff on stations or scientists in Antarctica do in their spare time. I mean, this is also a form of tourism. And Absolutely. in fact, the World, yeah, the World Tourism Organization actually defines tourism as activities undertaken by someone who visits a certain region that is outside their realm of normal habitation for up to a year, as long as they're not being paid from within that region that they're visiting. By that definition, almost everyone who works in Antarctica would be a tourist unless they stay longer than a year, because none of us are being paid from within Antarctica, which we don't want to, and which is not really possible under the current political regime, but it should serve us as a reminder that we might want to look at ourselves and how we are interacting with Antarctic environments also a bit more critically rather yep. than just pointing the finger in other directions. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I remember quite clearly uh, on my fieldwork, you know, I was thought that I had to kind of do science dawn till dusk every day because I was obviously only there for a limited time and my supervisor she was like oh you know you don't have to work all day on like weekends <laughs> you're still doing a job and then taking that to heart I was very much a tourist whilst I was also there <laughs> so yeah. yeah yeah and that is totally fine I mean there's nothing wrong with it wherever we go and even if it is in, that we travel to international conferences which obviously at the moment is rather limited we will be tourists there and we should take some time off and actually experience people and culture because that's how we also broaden our horizons and um, get different perspectives and different ideas for our research even if we are not aware of how much that influences us i think you being in the antarctic and experiencing some of the culture for instance in south georgia by visiting maybe Gritvik and remains of the old whaling station or whatever you did there would have some impact on you, would probably increase your passion for Antarctica. And that's probably something that is really good. It most certainly did, definitely did those things. Yeah, I would, <laughs> I would give almost anything to go back. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. And it's like you say, even if we take out 
what people would consider, you know, traditional tourism, i.e. people going on holiday, the human footprint in Antarctica is quite, is like much bigger than most people realize, isn't it? I mean, I have some figures here and you might tell me I'm wrong and I'm sorry if <laughs> to anyone if they are, but I believe um, there's over like 90 research bases on the continent of Antarctica. Is that you might not know off I the top of your head. I think that sounds about right. Yeah, it might maybe some be, of those are not be... all active still, but... Um, exactly, yeah. And yeah. some of them, I mean, they're not all year-round stations. They're yes, all exactly. stations and refuges and I think... I mean, Comnap has the latest data, the Council of Managers of National Antarctic Programs. They've got a really good website and they actually have a station catalogue where you can interactively learn about the different stations and I would always recommend anyone to go there to go to their website to find out how many active stations there are in Antarctica. I don't have the number on the top of my head either because um, I mean I'm not a walking encyclopedia of <laughs> yeah, facts no. and figures so I would always go back to the Comlab website or talk to the Comlab executive secretary to really get a definite answer on how many stations there are but there are a lot and there are as we know spread around the coast of the whole continent we'll link the website in this bio so people can <laughs> of this yes so, yes so please can do see there's yeah like you say there's loads more than people think i think how many uh, there's like over 40 signatories of the antarctic treaty and they operate in the antarctic at some point of the year you know it's yes, not just the one at the south pole <laughs> so and then that's just science and then there's all the you know fishing activity um etc it's mm -hmm. way more extensive than people realize i was just wanted to ask you you're talking about kind of the, the the benefits of tourism to the region so what 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 are those in the antarctic because like i say there's no sovereign nation that you know yes. <laughs> specifically benefits um, yeah, that's a, an interesting question and one that we've been actually grappling with in terms of a research project that focused on the rather loose and ambiguously used term of Antarctic ambassadorship. Because if you look at tourism operators, they would claim that taking people to the Antarctic turns them into ambassadors for the continent, especially as environmental protection is concerned. However, we haven't actually seen any scientific data that indicate that people change how they behave, for instance, in their daily lives or how they act after visiting Antarctica. So we don't have any reliable information in terms of to what extent a visit to Antarctica change, changes a person in a positive manner. And then to also say, well, what is the quality of that change? What are the characteristics of that change? Do they then start to behave more environmentally friendly? Do they start donating more to certain scientific or Antarctic related charities? Do they make other changes to their life? Do they reach out to others to try to educate them about the need to reduce carbon emissions, for instance? So we don't have any data on that and we'd really like to launch a research project that focuses on that aspect. Um, we've already done a preliminary study that looked at, well, how would we first of all define what an ambassador is, um, seeing that it is often used in a political context 
for someone who is an appointee by a certain country to represent the country's interests in a different place. So how would that look like for Antarctica? Because obviously we've got people from different nationalities and different cultures visiting Antarctica. How would we know when someone is an ambassador? Who are they ambassadors for? For their own cultures in Antarctica or for Antarctica, speaking on behalf of Antarctica in, in this sense? Well, what does speaking on behalf of Antarctica mean? Who are you speaking for? For the various ecosystems that we have in Antarctica, for um, the animals that live in Antarctica, for nature, wilderness, and so on in general, for scientists and science that is occurring in Antarctica, if so, what kind of science and scientists? Or for other people visiting Antarctica, or for commercial interests in and around Antarctica. I mean, so what would they need to be ambassadors for to be actually considered as a proper Antarctic ambassador? So, I mean, that kind of work has happened as part of a workshop in Australia in a couple of years ago now, I think, and has been published. But we are now looking for ways to take this further. And obviously, if anyone of your listeners has any ideas for funding sources for this kind of work, we are all ears. So that's a bit of my plaque already here okay. in this portion of the podcast. But that aside, in terms of other benefits from tourism that we already know about, you could certainly say, well, tourism supports science in certain ways, not only in terms of offering outreach and education about um, certain Antarctic research projects and knowledge, sharing knowledge about Antarctica and its environments, um, but also by offering birth, for instance, to scientists visiting the Antarctic. And especially some Antarctic programs really, really benefit from that. So tourism operators would bring equipment and scientists on board of their cruise vessel, for instance, to the Antarctic um, and thus granting voyage to some of those researchers or station personnel who wouldn't have any other ways of getting there. They also, when I was there, um, the tourism operators also provided fresh water to some of the stations that were being visited, which is hugely beneficial to the stations because they would otherwise have to go through the costly process of desalinating the seawater. They were in the peninsula region, so were by the sea. And they, that saved them a lot of time, money, and obviously possibly also some of um, carbon footprint even though the water was carted all the way across. So, I mean, I haven't done the calculations on that, so take that with a grain of salt, but it is certainly worthwhile thinking about. They also provided fresh fruit and vegetables to some of the stations. Which are very much appreciated when you're on a station. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And we all know that any one of us who's been to Antarctica for any period of time on any station, would certainly appreciate the value of being offered fresh fruit and vegetables instead of canned goods or mm -hmm. frozen foods or dehydrated and then rehydrated meals. Yes. So they do a bit of that. And then also what is undeniable is that they raise quite a lot of funding, money for Antarctic related NGOs. So a lot of the tourists who visit Antarctica, as we know, are reasonably well off. And if 
you put the right plug in, have the right people on board to talk to them about certain environmental NGOs or any causes that might get them excited, they're often willing to give money to that purpose. And then as we also know, IADO itself, the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators, has raised funding and has contributed funding to Antarctic-related research and education through offering an IADO fellowship, um, which is in line with the SCAR fellowships that a lot of the early career researchers benefit from, and also joining forces with SCAR in the Antarctic Conservation Planning Project. You get Stephen Sharon on this podcast. He might be able to tell you more about that. Oh, Stephen or Jasmine Lee or others. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, there are a number of benefits which we should acknowledge and appreciate, I think. Yeah. And just talking about kind of um, chips of opportunity there in terms of births for um, you know, visiting scientists. Is there any kind of growing amount of civilian science that happens from um, cruise ships in Antarctica, using tour ships to get to like a wider access of sample sites or even you're know, collecting more regular samples of, of whatever? Yes. <laughs> I mean, to a certain extent, yes. And there are citizen science projects that tourists actually enjoy getting involved in. And again, you will know a bit more about some of them from your colleague, Alison Kusick. I think oh, yeah. she's done a bit of work on it, on the fjord, um, what was it? No, you're putting me on the spot here, but oh, she's <laughs> worked with a citizen science project that I think looked at phytoplankton mapping and phytoplankton identification. So there is a lot of appetite for that, not just in terms of research that involves you being in the Antarctic, but also analyzing remotely sensed data. For instance, one of my colleagues, Michelle Larue, has had huge success with getting citizens around the world involved in identifying seals. Or now, I think they are now also looking at emperor penguins on remotely sensed images, which would otherwise take a lot of time for them to go through. Whereas if you had hundreds and thousands of people around the world teaching the computer how to identify pixels and what is a seal and what isn't helps a lot and, and also creates a certain awareness in people about well, Antarctic wildlife, about the research that's going on, about the landscapes and landforms, and gives them the pleasure of knowing that they're contributing to a greater cause. It was definitely a website that, because I've been on it before, and I'm, I think the project was either, I can't remember what university, I apologize, it was either Cambridge or Oxford I believe and you could like they had lots of photos of penguin colonies from you know like cameras that they'd put out and you just had to click them because that was helping to count them all and then that was being part of their data I'm sure I did that when I should have been revising for some exam or something and it was like <laughs> <therapy>. I know <laughs> yeah. it is quite addictive yeah so in some way I mean whether you're having adults getting into this kind of flow state by coloring in books or <laughs> doing something like that, that is almost mindless activity and very repetitive, but very calming for your central mm -hmm. nervous system. You could almost argue that doing something like that and clicking on pixels that are seals or have the same kind of uh, response yeah. to your nervous <laughs> system. 
And also, there must be benefits of tourism to kind of the, the, the gateway cities of Antarctica, which is something we've not really mentioned on this podcast before. We tend to focus on the polar places, but of course, well, like Canterbury is, is one of them. <laughs> so can you tell us a bit more about them and the yes. benefits? So they there, are, there are indeed benefits, as long as it doesn't take overhand, I would say. So at the moment, as you know, we've got those five key gateway cities, Ushuaia in Argentina, Punta Arenas in Chile, um, Cape Town, South Africa, Hobart in Australia and Christchurch in New Zealand. And most of the travel to the Antarctic is routed through one or the other of those gateway cities. And they benefit from it financially, but also culturally and in terms of self-esteem of the cities themselves um, and perceived importance in, in their position as gateway cities within their countries and also internationally, possibly ideally as a network of gateway cities. In Christchurch, we've actually done some economic analysis of the money that is being brought into Christchurch, but also New Zealand in general, due to its status as an Antarctic gateway city and host to various Antarctic programs. I mean, for Christchurch, it's more the Antarctic research sector and Antarctic education sector within the city that brings some of the benefits. But there is a definite positive impact and benefit from that. Similar for Punta Arenas, which serves as a gateway for a lot of the national Antarctic programs and also for those tourism operations that travel to the Antarctic by plane first. So they would get quite a lot of benefit from that as well. And I actually have a PhD student who's also in the APEX executive committee, Gabriela Roden, who's just finished her PhD and is a doctor now and has done really, really well in her thesis. And she looked at the gateway cities and Antarctic identities, uh, nationalisms, the benefits that they got from being linked to the Antarctic and to Antarctic tourism or research in one way or another, and how that shaped the citizens' perception of and perspectives of being part of those cities. So yeah, her PhD thesis is really a worthwhile read on that, on that topic. Um, but that aside, we also know that, for instance, in Ushuaia, Argentina, where most of the tourism to the Antarctic Peninsula is really traveling through, they are also struggling a bit with the implications of having to cater for a growing tourism industry because they have to deal, for instance, with all the landfill that comes, all the waste that comes back from the Antarctic. And Ushuaia is only a small city and was once the sleepy town in southern Patagonia. And then the government decided that as part of the strategy, they would develop the port and its connectivity to the Antarctic in order to channel more tourism through. And that was well received at first, but now there are some problems emerging from having a very, very seasonal industry. I mean, almost returning to Sleepy Town at the end of March again, and then having to deal with suddenly a lack of life, a lack of people. And yet in summer, you have to have restaurants and businesses catering to 
a huge number of people who are traveling through. So over the last few years, with that increase in tourism that they've been seeing with Swaya and its inhabitants, they have been struggling a bit with having to accommodate suddenly not only the demands visitors place upon a city in terms of needing accommodation and driving housing prices and accommodation prices up, um, but also needing to be fed so the food needs to be brought in. And as you know, in Southern Patagonia, you can really grow a lot. So a lot of it needs to be imported and you need to have the infrastructure in place for that, but also primarily dealing with the waste that comes back on board of the cruise ships from the Antarctic. Yeah, it's not really part of the picture that you really imagine, I suppose, very often when you think of people in Antarctica. I don't know why. <laughs> I think you say it's probably one of the most critical parts of it that we have to consider as part of the footprint. You know, where does the footprint of Antarctica stop? Is it just below you know, a certain parallel just inside the Antarctic current, or is it, you know, all the cities mm. that we, these gateway cities as well? It's, uh, it's not black and white. <laughs> and it doesn't even stop there, as we know, because uh, everything is connected in the world and yep. um, impacts in one place will have an effect on other places in the world. Yeah. Okay. So well, we kind of touched on it there, but um, so we talked a little bit about the benefits of tourism. Do you want, should we talk a little bit about the, the, the downsides of tourism without, you know, putting too many people off <laughs> flaming, yeah. flaming my bias that I have already? <laughs> of course, no. And we know that any travel has negative impacts on either the place or primarily from the creation of greenhouse gases, greenhouse gas emissions from long haul travel. And that holds true for tourism and also for science, for any engagement with the Antarctic, because it is so removed from where most of us live. I mean, if you think you're in the UK and for you to travel to South Georgia, you would have to fly somewhere to South America or take a ship, either or. And we do know now from research that cruise ships actually create quite a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. So just yesterday I talked to a colleague about it. Bob Frame here, who sent me a few papers on that topic where they say that essentially, actually cruise ships have about per passenger, and that was a New Zealand study for cruise tourists in and around New Zealand, about four times the greenhouse gas emissions of air travel, which comes to a surprise mm -hmm. for lots of people. But we do know that no, cruise ships don't run clean either. I mean, as environmentally friendly and as advanced as there are, there's always some impact on the marine environment and then also on the, in terms of climate change through the greenhouse gas emissions. But again, that's true for us, be it science or tourism, that's true for every engagement, every form of engagement with the Antarctic because nobody lives there and could say, oh, well, I just walk out my back door and do my research and then contribute the data. And another thing that we also know, and this is primarily true for science, uh, but to a limited extent also for tourism, is that the data we generate and that we store have a huge carbon footprint in terms of energy use and so on for the data storage and the data analysis. So we need to think about it more broadly. But in terms of tourism again, 
I mean, obviously there are some, there are impacts on the local environments as well through visitation. So if you talk about the tourism that actually lands tourists and visits places, well, if you land people repeatedly at the same site and some of the sites, as you know, are highly frequented. There's about 20 sites in the Antarctic Peninsula that receive more than 90% of all tourists or landed tourists, that is. So those sites will see impacts in terms of potential trampling, potential littering, and not really on purpose, but accidentally having things blown away and so on. Um, there is always a small, as I said, a small amount of leakage from vessels in terms of hydraulic fluid in contact with the ocean. And then probably the main one, and not really a real impact, but a potentially great disaster is if there is um, a marine incident or accident that involves the sinking of a ship, as we've already seen with the MV Explorer, for instance, in 2007, or even lives lost and then small or larger um, marine fuel leakages into the into the ocean. So there could be potentially significant impacts from that, even though now Antarctic operators are required to only use light marine fuel oils, which would evaporate much more quickly and wouldn't really result in the same impacts that we've seen, for instance, here in New Zealand with the Rena disaster, where a lot of the heavy marine fuel and the heavy fuel oils were then coating marine wildlife and causing them to not be able to really survive without human help in those most severe cases. So those are some of the impacts and obviously there's a direct disturbance and interaction between humans and wildlife and a competition for ice-free ground because most of the tourist visits are to sites where you have breeding colonies of animals and they will be impacted by visits, even if it is not as obvious as it could be, but there will be some impacts from the frequent comings and goings. Yeah. And I mean, of, of course, it probably goes, it must go without saying that there's like regulations that only be allowed to land so many people at a time. And obviously that is only in certain places, etc. I imagine they're only allowed to stay on certain routes, maybe even the ships themselves. Um, and there'll be like no... I don't know, is there like no fly zones, for want of a better word, where they're absolutely not allowed to go at all? Well, there are certain areas in the Antarctic where you can't really bring anyone um, unless you've got express permission, and that would be to the Antarctic specially protected areas, for instance, ASPAS, or to ASMAS, Antarctic specially managed areas where you have to, that are primarily for science and science collaboration, where you would have to get prior permission as well. So there are certain areas that are supposedly inviolate and that you try to set aside for research and or protection purposes. But then, I, I mean, I only touched on some of the negative impacts of tourism. There are lots more, but again, most of them apply equally to science visits or yeah. station visits. As to tourism, for instance, if you take vessels in health fouling and bringing in potentially non-native species that could become established, especially in a warming peninsula and so on and so forth. I mean, there's lots and lots more that we haven't even touched on. Microplastics, nanoparticles, black carbon. I mean, 
the list is endless. It's just part of human interactions with a broader planet, I would say. Yes, absolutely. And how, and I how think we operate in the world. I think that should, we should underscore that as the take home message from this little segment. <laughs> you know, we're not singling out tourism as <laughs> a cause of all yeah. problems um, down there. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have a tricky question, which might even probably, I imagine doesn't even have a specific answer. Is there kind of, um, has there been a discussion about whether there's kind of an upper limit of the number of people which can be in Antarctica at any one time? Obviously bases have a capacity and then there can only be so many cruise ships because there's only so many I mean, places where they can stop, etc. Is the is it a distinct have, figure? <laughs> well, there have been discussions about that. There hasn't been a specific figure assigned simply because it is really, really difficult and I would almost say beyond our current capacity of imagining how how many people you could fit on individual sites in a sequential fashion. But there is, in effect, through the site-specific guidelines, with a, which a lot of the tourist sites have and which have been developed by the or put in place by the Antarctic Treaty consultative parties for those frequently visited sites, they specify directly how many ship visits are being allowed with how many, many people and were on these sites. So you could just have ships coming in left, right and center. They, they will need and they do coordinate their visits to mm. ensure that A, there's only one ship, one place, one time, and also that they don't exceed the overall uh, number of hours during which visits are allowed. So that is all being ensured. But generally, if your question aimed at getting a number for the whole continent, there were actually attempts by, for instance, the Netherlands to look at tourism studies and look at, well, what do we need to do in the future to manage and govern tourism better, if we need to do anything. And they have discussed the issue of caps on numbers. Similarly, ASERC, the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition, has looked into that. Can tourism and should tourism numbers be capped? Should we have a quota? But then, even just thinking about a quota also brings up questions. Well, how would we manage a quota? Who would get to go and who would assign parts of that quota to individual companies or even individual travelers, because there's also independent tourism going on. So not all tourism is organized through IATO members. There's also independent yachts going down. There's adventure tourism occurring in the Antarctic. And then there's also National Antarctic Program facilitated tourism to a certain extent, even if you just think about it as them bringing down VIPs or them offering some of their facilities for use by tourists and by paying visitors, all of which also happens. So it's not just commercial tourism operators as such. So the question of quota and caps is a really tricky one because, I mean, at the moment, we cannot really cap numbers of national program participants visiting centrally either. That's within the realm of the individual national programs to decide. And you've mentioned station capacities. I mean, we know that stations are getting refurbished and expanded and restructured. And there's a lot of infrastructure upgrading programs currently underway that we, for instance, also see airways being put in on new landing strips that have the capacity 
for landing greater, larger planes, carrying more people. So extending the seasons, running larger winter pro research programs, for instance, all of that stretches what our present understanding of a station capacity is in the future. So it, it's hard for scientists and it's equally hard, if not, not harder for tourists. So it has been debated, but no number has been decided on or fixed. And the actual question and discussion has been actually set aside for yes. now. I kind of imagined that there wouldn't be a specific <laughs> easy answer to that question, but yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, shall we move on to the question on everybody's lips, <laughs> which is um, trigger warning alert, uh, COVID-19. Because you are kind of leading or co-leading this the Antarctic COVID-19 project, which has been run by SCAR. Yes. So, which is kind of to, it's been set up to find out how, what the impacts of COVID-19 have been on the Antarctic research community and mm -hmm. kind of maybe examine what the long-term implications might be. Is that part of the remit as well? Yes. Yes. So my first question regarding all of this was like, when, at what point did it rear its head in the scientific community is like oh we need to have a committee to talk about COVID was it as early as this time last year or was it even earlier than that or not so much late well having it wouldn't have been earlier than that because that would have been very prescient of course to think about COVID just before mm. it became a global before it became a global problem and pandemic now the issue arose in April slash May last year, 2020, right. when we were actually approached by the SCAR president, Stephen Chown, who told us, and by us, I mean here the Scientific um, Committee on Antarctic Research's Standing Committee on the Humanities and Social Sciences, CHESS in short. Um, and he approached us and said, well, look, with your social science and humanities expertise, you would be the ideal group to have researchers who might be interested in looking at the impact of COVID on, on Antarctic science and Antarctic researchers as such, and SCAR as part of that. So SCAR really provided the impetus for us to do this work and to get together. And they also kindly provided some funding for the project management, which we really want to acknowledge here because that was what was really really essential for something like that we also looked at other funding streams but it became quite obvious that most of the COVID related funding went to either medical research as we all know or research that looked at issues related to COVID that were closer to home for most countries such as education and how can we manage populations in lockdown conditions? How do we ensure that the economies are going ahead as well as they could and so on and so forth. So we couldn't really find any funding streams that we could easily apply to for our COVID-19 research project. And the project itself is broad and it's very, very international. We've got lots of wonderful people working on it which makes it such a pleasure to be involved in and there's actually a number of sub projects or work packages as we call them with one of them focusing on antarctic futures another one focuses 
focusing on inductive research and decision making, then one looking at tourism, one at perceptions in relation to Antarctica, which is more the wider public and media representations of COVID in relation to Antarctica, because as we know, for most of last year, Antarctica was the only continent that was still free of COVID-19, <laughs> despite having had close encounters with cruise ships already in the previous season. Yeah. But then that all evaporated this present season. And then there's another work package that looked at Antarctic wildlife and wildlife human interactions, and they've published a paper recently on that topic as well, which is available online and I think is open access. So as part of that broader research program, one of those work packages, as I said, focused primarily on the Antarctic research community. And that's, I think, what you wanted to talk to me about a bit more. And yes, sure. I'm happy yeah. to answer any questions there. The, the biggest question is, how was COVID impacted the <laughs> Antarctic research community? And I know that your report is not fully published yet. So, I mean, only yep. tell us what you can at this stage. And then maybe by the time this episode comes out, we'll be able to direct people to it. So, uh, Great. No, great. So we have, in order to address that question, we have run a community survey, Antarctic Science Community Survey, broadly speaking, that was distributed last year between September, late September, let's say October and November. Um, and then later on, also in a translated version in December, again, to the broader Antarctic community. And we actually had what I would consider reasonably good uptake with over 400 responses. We didn't really get as many responses as we hoped from those non-traditional, non-Western Antarctic countries. So most of our responses came actually from English speaking countries like the US, UK, New Zealand, and Australia, which prompted us to then think about, well, should we possibly translate the survey? And we then found kind volunteers and again, kind support from SCAR in terms of a bit of funding for those translations to be undertaken. And the surveys were translated as a result into Mandarin, Russian and Spanish. And again, we asked for input. Unfortunately, we did have a bit of an uptake amongst the Spanish speaking populations, but not so much in China or Russia, which really surprised us, to be honest. But we yeah, later on had discussions with researchers who were from those countries to understand a bit better what the stumbling block might have been for researchers in those countries to fill in a survey. And I don't really want to go into that now. I can later on if there's time, but let's just focus on the impact on the Antarctic community. So broadly speaking, the way the Antarctic research community was impacted by COVID is very much in line with the impacts we've seen on other science communities. First and foremost, um, those communities that also do heavy field work. And there we really see a significant impact on the delayed, postponed or altered field work and the stress that this creates, especially for early career researchers. So from our survey, we realized that 
almost the, the older and the more established people were, as a rough generalization, the less stressed they were by at least the impact on field work. Whereas early career researchers who needed to undertake field work to finish degrees or had specific funding contracts that required them to complete a program of research within a certain time, they were really um, quite concerned about COVID and about the implications that this had for the Antarctic field season. Because suddenly they realized they couldn't get into the field and get the data and they didn't know where else to get the data from. So there were a lot of people who asked whether there was a way to make data available, existing data available more broadly and publicly so that they could potentially work with data that others had already collected and integrate that into their, their own research to ensure that they could still deliver a product within the time frame planned or somewhere close to the time frame plan and then move on with their lives. And there were also amongst the early career researchers, there were also great worries regarding future prospects and future careers. So if you don't have an established position, then suddenly having COVID hit and you having to stay at home, limiting travel, you couldn't go and take up fellowships elsewhere, for instance, so you couldn't network actively in person, which is still one of the most important forms of making contacts and uh, furthering your chances to get a job somewhere or get another research position or get a postdoc, depending on whatever stage in your career you're at. So all of that fell apart. And we also had a number of people who had scheduled travel to work in labs elsewhere in the world. And suddenly they realized, well, they can't go or they were stuck elsewhere. There were migration issues. There were greater costs. And then aside from those career related impacts, which were also felt in other fields, not just in Antarctic science, as I already mentioned before. We also interestingly saw significant mental challenges relating to lockdown. Um, so mental well-being was really impacted because of those that were grieving for whatever um, reason, because they may have lost loved ones or just were really stressed by the whole situation, how it unfolded in their countries. Um, recorded a really significant and extreme impact on the mental well-being. And there were a number of people, almost 40%, who had trouble sleeping or trouble concentrating. Having increased anxiety and stress was also reported quite a bit. So there were some impacts on mental well-being, full stop. There were also additional pressures in terms of people, even for people who had standing positions, long-term contracts or permanent positions, they felt that suddenly COVID had turned the world upside down and suddenly they had to change their teaching. They didn't have time for research anymore. There was more pressure to provide time for service roles, time in Zoom meetings. I mean, we've all experienced that suddenly we are faced working at home on our own, but then sitting hours and hours in Zoom meetings with various people. And even if it is for the 
purpose of trying to still feel connected. So, um, and that has a huge toll, not just in terms of the health effects of having increased screen time when you would normally just go and have a coffee or tea with someone somewhere else or sitting outside or taking a walk and talking about work or about other things. So suddenly everything had to be done on a screen and that had an impact as well. There were also some positive impacts related to COVID in terms of, for instance, benefits of working from home, not having to commute anymore, which saves some time. And online workshops and trainings and conferences benefited especially those that would normally not have had the funding to attend them in person. So not charging fees for them was actually a huge solution to Antarctic research generally. So yeah, that's some of the key results we've got from that, from the survey. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people can empathize or sympathize or both with a lot of <laughs> those things that, you're, that, ex that we've all been experiencing, I suppose. What was the impact? I suppose the impact on actual field work itself would have mostly been from a logistical point of view, as in, you know, everyone going down has to quarantine for a certain amount of time and supply runs and stuff like that were kind of, were they in any way just was everything just delayed i mean i was thinking about it quite a lot because i have some well some acquaintances who i met on my field work who were then still there or in the year after um, mm -hmm. so they were there you know this time last year before it had all started and then for many months after and i was like in some ways <laughs> it would have been they've missed it all so <laughs> they you know, that would have brought its own stresses, I suppose. But I was thinking, oh, you know, I was often thought during that first lockdown in the UK, oh, it'd be nice to be in South Georgia right now. <laughs> but uh, Yes, good question. But yeah, we, since we don't, didn't really get a lot of input from people who were in the Antarctic at the time, possibly due to bandwidth and it was a reasonably long survey. So, so I cannot really judge at this point how they would have seen the situation. Our input, our results are primarily from people who are based outside Antarctica and who were locked down there or going through um, the pandemic in their various countries. And also for more than half of our respondents, Antarctic field work was considered extremely important. Mm. So we do have to see it in that kind of framing. And for many of them, the field seasons were cancelled or, mm -hmm. I mean, last field season was pretty much cancelled for a lot of people. Or it was postponed or delayed or changed in other ways. But in general, the field season was reduced. And for again, for a lot of the participants, they said that continuous field seasons to achieve their research objective are extremely or very important. So that was almost like three-fourths, almost three-fourths of all the respondents said, well, they really needed continuous field seasons. And there, COVID would have really thrown a spanner in the works. I know that in some programs, they then tried to train technical staff that were already in the Antarctic or were amongst the very few people who had to go down anyways. They were trying to train them to take 
samples or run some of the long-term experiments in the Antarctic just to continue getting the data that but I don't know how this went because as you know we are still in the current Antarctic field season so we'll probably only know later on what the actual impact in terms of continued or long-term observations will be. Yeah I imagine we'll be you know, in um, conferences of a year to come and there'll be long-term data sets with graphs and there'll just be a little blip on <laughs> 2020. <laughs> well, it'll be like, oh no, <laughs> that was that was COVID. So yeah, possibly, <laughs> possibly yeah. Um, and so that was the impact, I suppose, on researchers. And then we were also looking at the impact on tourism. Was that one of your work packages and how... We are we are we are looking at that as well. Uh, obviously, we've already seen a significant impact on tourism in terms of operators. I imagine that just stopped. Did it just stop entirely? For not entirely, but most of the operators for this present season have cancelled. Yeah, yeah. There were still a number that wanted to go, and I do need to refresh myself um, on what actually happened. But yeah, most of them just had to cancel it wasn't either economically or logistically feasible sure to sure. undertake tourist visits yeah there's another survey that is being planned for the tourism sector to look at that to look at the impacts and the future of tourism in a post-pandemic world if we if we do ever get there mm -hmm. yeah. so so that will be delivered later this year because we are still going through the process of human ethics approval for that project. Okay. So I can't really say too much about that at this point. We could cover that in another podcast. Yeah, later. watch the space. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Sorry, so one of the other work packages, I believe in the group is impacts on Antarctic wildlife. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of explain what you mean by that? Um, in this case, I would really just refer everyone to Andres Barbosa's and Megan Dewar's really, really great and comprehensive paper. And they, I mean, they looked at everything in terms of potential transmission vectors of the virus. They looked at uh, reverse zoonosis where the virus is being transferred again from humans to animals and what potential implications that would have. They looked at uh, waste products, for instance, and if, if Antarctica or an Antarctic station suddenly had a COVID outbreak, what would that mean in terms of its station personnel's interactions with the environment, with the waste products, with travel, with so many other aspects that they looked at. So I don't really feel like I can do it justice in this podcast to really summarize their, their great work. It is out there and if you can, we can possibly just link to the paper. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I imagine for some of the Antarctic animals in those breeding sites, they had a year off from tourism, so maybe that was quite nice <laughs> for them. <laughs> it might, I mean, yeah. Who can say? <laughs> we probably will be able to see the effect of that in a year or two years time. Yeah. Yeah. So are there any other kind of, um, you know, inklings of long-term implications, whether, you know, adverse or otherwise that 
COVID has kind of changed the game of humans in Antarctica? I think there will be long-term implications, not just in terms of Antarctic science or Antarctic tourism, but obviously also the um, rest of the world and the focus. It has brought the focus on back on pandemics, which we have lost sight of a bit, I think, mm-hmm. um, even though in the medical communities and some of the future studies, research communities, it was mentioned that, I mean, we are living in a century where the way we interact with the environment has has to have some consequences and that we would be facing um, the serious implications of our rather degrading human environment relations in the near future and that there would be pandemics that we cannot even envisage at the moment. And we probably already know that this won't be the last pandemic that we are dealing with. It will change how the world interacts. I mean, it will influence travel restrictions and travel um, processes, for instance, and protocols for international air travel and required vaccinations or mandatory quarantines. So there is a greater awareness now, I think, of what we have to do in order to ensure uh, minimum risk in terms of zoonosis, reverse zoonosis, or even human-human transmission of viruses and other pathogens. So that will have an impact on how we organize Antarctic research and travel in the future. It will also have an impact on Antarctic politics. As we've seen, we haven't had an Antarctic Treaty Consultative meeting last year, which has been a bit disappointing, but admittedly, most of the parties were pressed by other more urgent or perceived urgent issues in their own countries. But it will have lingering effects on the development of the Antarctic Treaty System, which was already not as responsive to current and upcoming issues as many of us would have liked to see. So now they're behind even a bit more. What does it mean for the future stability of the Antarctic Treaty System, for the way parties work together, for the urgency they assign to dealing with Antarctic climate change, for instance, or other pressing issues of Antarctic pollution or human Antarctic interactions. So I think it will have a lasting impact. And also money has been spent on so many other things because other priorities have been set. There will be other priorities to come for governments. So that might affect on how much money they put into Antarctic and polar research more generally. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. You know, it's one thing we can take, if nothing else, from the whole COVID thing. At least now we've got a template for how to react to a kind of this global pandemic situation. So, yeah, you know, we've <laughs> survived one kind of thing. And that's really interesting what you're saying about prioritizing research and where polar research priorities fit into a whole nation's kind of, you know, list, I suppose, of things they're working down and if you say already that you've missed one Antarctic Treaty meeting because of the pandemic, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, interesting. <laughs> I keep saying oh, yes. interesting, but it all very much is, yeah. <laughs> I guess 
I guess it all got us to reflect a bit more on um, how we have in the past interacted with nature and mm. how relaxed we were in terms of actually perceiving the risks of degradations of environments and climate yeah. change, thinking about natural environments and encroachment to natural environments and trying to bring everything under human control. And it also got us personally, I think, to reflect a bit more on our own priorities in life and whether we needed to travel to so many conferences and maybe like me, I actually quite enjoy not traveling because it does put a lot of pressure, not only as we know on the planet in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, but also on individuals' health in terms of time zone changes, spending hours and hours in airplanes and then in meetings and so on. So I think it got all of us a bit more to reflect on what might be really important or might be more important than other things. Yeah, which is hopefully good news for the Antarctic and all polar places in the, in the future. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Okay, so that brings us to the last bit of the podcast. We call it the Polar Plug. It's where we give you, Daniela, our guest, just a few minutes for you to talk, uninterrupted by questions from me, uh, just about something that, anything that you'd like really to promote to the general public, feel free to use this podcast as a platform to put the word out there about something. We've already said quite a few things, which we'll be happy to link in the bio. So, um, but yeah, if you want to go into a person or a project or anything. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. Um, yeah, so what I really want to touch on again is not necessarily a particular project or a research program or something that we might want to put funding into, but it's more generally about connecting different research areas and research disciplines more broadly. As we've seen, I mean, we are living in such a complex and interconnected world um, that we cannot necessarily fully grasp the implications of something such as COVID, for instance, on the Antarctic research community without actually working together across multiple disciplines and without bringing in people with a completely different perspective. They come, for instance, from the humanities or social sciences where they look at philosophical issues much more critically. And I think COVID has reminded us of a of the need to reevaluate our values in life and human values and also human governance systems and how we respond to disasters that are global in nature and why, for instance, we put so much emphasis on addressing problems related to COVID when yet we know that there's for instance, lots and lots of people dying every year because of low water quality or not having enough food or malnutrition or, on the other hand, obesity and any of those related diseases. And we put billions and billions of dollars into that, um, into trying to cope with that. And yet we have not really thought about programmatic global 
way of addressing it or global solution. So I think it has taught us to reevaluate where we are, what is important and how we can individually, but also as a community. And here I speak primarily also for the polar community, help each other in making contributions by connecting without necessarily always requiring the same carbon footprint and the same level of impact by, for instance, having all of us travel to the Antarctic when we could more effectively share data and also think about, well, what else can we contribute to the global community? What can we give back? Because as we know, polar research is very niche. However, we also know that information feeds into the IPCC, for instance, and our understanding of sea level rise and in so many other issues related to changing climates and changing weather systems in the rest of the world. We just need to possibly even re-evaluate re how we package those and feed that back and engage and excite the public. And they're bringing in all kinds of stakeholders. So now I'm not just talking about integrating across disciplines, but also bringing in policymakers and communities, for instance, if you talk about Arctic research in the, in the Arctic, to co-produce knowledge and bring them in as partners, not just as, oh, we want to communicate to you <laughs> our, what we found and then hope that you do the best with it. No, but bring them in as partners to share and built a broader understanding of this knowledge creation process. So I think that's something that I would very much hope that also I know has started in Apex and SCAR and thinking about it has started in the rest of the world, but we can probably advance it even more as kind of a lesson from all the things we went through. Yeah, absolutely. I like to think that that kind of intersectionality and cross-discipline work and science communication and all that stuff is an integral part of science and polar science. And I'm pretty sure that in the short time I've been in polar science, that has been a strong emphasis. But as you say, I wholeheartedly agree. We can always do more. So yeah, Thank absolutely. You. Okay, that brings us to another, the end of another episode of Polar Times. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in once again if you'd like to get in contact with us about anything um, if you have any questions or if you'd like to recommend any guests you can reach us on our email which is these are polar times at gmail.com once again that email is these are polar times at gmail.com or you can tweet apex at polar underscore research and yeah, please remember to like, rate and subscribe on all the places where you get Polar Times. And all that remains then is for me to thank my guest, Daniela Leggett. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jack. Thank it's you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>